You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Steedsellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. Today, we have two segments on cancer care and outcomes. The first will focus on disparities, and the second on the state of the race for the cure. And I'm delighted now to welcome Dr. Carol Brown, who's a gynecological oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. Dr. Brown, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. A word to our audience before we begin. If you have questions for Dr. Brown and later for Dr. Agus, please tweet them to our Twitter handle at Post Live. That's at Post Live. We'll be checking for your questions and would love to pose them to our guests today. Thank you. So, Dr. Brown, let's start with the big question. You hold the title of Chief Health Equity Officer at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Can you tell me what that job entails? And just step it back a little bit and tell me what health equity means today. Well, I think it's very important to start with the concept of health equity and what does it mean. So equity really means that everyone has the same great chance to have a great outcome from their cancer that they're affected by. And there's a difference between equity and equality. If you think about it in terms of people trying to reach, people of different heights trying to reach um, an apple on a branch of a tree, equality can mean that even though everyone is at a different height, you give them all uh, the same uh, size box to stand on to reach that apple. So it's equal. They each have an equal uh, leg up, so to speak. But equity means that you recognize the individual differences in that person. So the shortest person, you give a higher height box to reach the apple. That's really what equity means. It means that when we're looking at cancer outcome, we wanna look at the individual patient and what are the barriers to them achieving a great outcome from their cancer? And what can we do to get rid of those barriers? So equity in cancer really means that every patient, no matter where they're born, where they live, what their socioeconomic status is, what language they speak, that they have access to and get the best uh, outcome from their cancer. That seems to me to be such an important distinction, and I'd love to take it to your particular job at one of the best-funded, best-known cancer centers in the world, Memorial Sloan Kettering, based in New York, and really with um, the ability to give care to the best connected and richest people around the world. How does health equity fit into your daily life and into the work of an institution like that? Well, Memorial Sloan Kettering, I just want to kind of correct you, is actually an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center. And just, uh, just like all the NCI-designated comprehensive cancer centers, it's part of a national network um, and part of the federal government's and the president's plan to uh, deliver great cancer care and particularly uh, great uh, discoveries in cancer to all people affected by cancer. And so like every NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center, Memorial Sloan Kettering, a part of our essential mission is making sure that all of the people in the area that we, that we serve uh, really have access to great, um, you know, to our, our great advances. A great example is clinical trials. So I'm very fortunate uh, working at the center for the last 32 years to have witnessed um, firsthand some incredible discoveries, as I think my colleague, Dr. Agus, will discuss a little bit later. 
And the, the job of the chief health equity officer and not, not just the chief health equity officer, but it's really been built into our mission um, for many, many years, is how can we disseminate uh, these great discoveries to um, the average patient with cancer in our, in our area? And getting access to clinical trials and being able to educate people about clinical trials, the importance of them, and make it easier for people to participate in clinical trials is really an essential part of that mission to bring cancer health equity. So I actually really did have a strong question about clinical trials. Um, enrollment, do you feel as if people of color um, enroll in appropriate numbers in clinical trials? Are they given the opportunity to take part? So uh, I think that's a really interesting question. And, and one of my uh, former mentors here at Sloan Kettering pointed out to me, you know, there's a lot of um, historical um, mistrust among different populations and different communities towards, um, towards science, towards research, um, and particularly in the Black American community uh, around the Tuskegee experiment and, and similar uh, issues. But what we have found in our work um, over many, many years here at Sloan Kettering and my colleagues at other cancer centers have found is that that mistrust really goes away um, when you treat people with respect, when you explain to them the information, and when you empower them with the knowledge about uh, their cancer uh, and what clinical trials specifically can do for them. So here at Sloan Kettering and at, at many, many other centers, um, we're able to get around that uh, understandable mis inherent mistrust um, by um, explaining to people you know, what causes cancer and how these uh, great advances have been made. And one thing that I've learned is that cancer, hearing a diagnosis of cancer is the great equalizer. It doesn't matter if you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or you are someone who drives an MTA bus. When you hear that you have cancer, um, all you can think about is that you want to live. And when, once we treat people um, and understand that that is really what everyone wants, I think that those issues of mistrust uh, can really, uh, that barrier can really be uh, gotten rid of. And here at Sloan Kettering, we actually are very fortunate because we have the resources, the support system, the navigation systems to help our patients enroll on clinical trials and to navigate them through clinical trials. And we're very, you know, it's really part of our doing business here. Um, and so we are able to enroll uh, people of different, a variety of different backgrounds on our clinical trials. I think the main issue though, is that majority of Americans are not getting their cancer care at an NCI designated comprehensive cancer center. About 70% of Americans get their cancer care in the community. So the real challenge for us as cancer researchers and, um, you know, and physicians is how do we disseminate that care to the community? And we actually have some um, interesting partnerships here at Sloan Kettering and also um, you know, around the country in order of ways to do that, to bring the clinical trials um, that we have at a center like Sloan Kettering and have them done in the patient's uh, home community, so to speak, with their local oncologist. 
so much of what you're saying now echoes from what we've learned through COVID. And I'm going to come back and ask you a little bit about disparities of this kind in a minute. But right now, I'd love you to talk a little bit about um, recent work that you have done, I think, on endometrial cancer or cancer of the uterus. Um, there are huge racial disparities here between the deaths of black women and other uh, people. Can you explain, could you talk a little bit about these disparities and what you think underlie them? Certainly. So um, we know when we look at cancer outcomes, particularly survival or death rates, there definitely are disparities or differences in how people do based on certain aspects of their background. And one of the demographics that's been commonly used to look at this is self-described race. And I say self-described race because it's very important in any of these discussions to understand that race is not a biological concept. It is a social construct that really uh, reflects a lot of the uh, social determinants of health, things such as socioeconomic status, uh, education, uh, access to clean uh, food and water and air that actually can go into uh, causing differences in cancer outcome. But we use self-described race um, as a surrogate for these things. And it's been long known that people who self-describe their race as Black in the United States have worse health outcomes for many things, high blood pressure, heart disease, kidney disease. And the same is true for cancer. Um, now, for the cancer that you were talking about, uh, cancer of the lining of the uterus or endometrial cancer, I'm a gynecologic oncologist, so this is one of the cancers that I deal with. This cancer has uh, been increasing in incidence. So it's now really, uh, I would say an epidemic. It's the most common GYN cancer. More and more women are getting it. More and more women are getting it at a younger age. And unfortunately for the last 40 years, there's been a 25% lower five-year survival for women who describe themselves as black race compared to other groups. And um, this is a pattern that is seen with some other cancers, such as prostate, lung, breast, and colon cancer. The first thing you want to do when you figure out what is the, this due to, is it a difference in access to care? Is it a difference in access to clinical trials? And for many of the cancers that I just mentioned, you can get rid of these differences by um, making sure that people have the same access to screening and treatment. But for endometrial cancer and for some of the other cancers, including prostate cancer, it's probably more than that because just giving access to the same treatments, the same clinical trials doesn't get rid of, of that uh, difference. And so my colleagues and I here at Sloan Kettering and also I have colleagues around the country who are really trying to understand what are some of the other factors in addition to access to care, screening and treatment. Specifically, are there molecular genetic factors, molecular features of the types of cancer that women who describe their race as black are getting compared to women who describe their race as white that might explain uh, why they're responding differently to treatments and why they have not had as great an outcome. And this, is, this kind of work is also going on in some of these other cancers. And I think we are going to find and actually have some preliminary information that there may be differences in the molecular makeup of the type of tumors that different groups get that may affect how they respond to treatment and could partially explain these disparities. 
Dr. Brown, I want to ask you about another issue very much in the news today, and that's the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court decision that overruled Roe versus Wade. Um, pregnant women get cancer. Um, treating that cancer can at different stages have different risks for a fetus. What is the impact on your colleagues operating in abortion ban states at the moment? So I'm not able to actually answer that question the way you'd like, just because I'm a gynecologic oncologist and, and you know, I don't practice obstetrics. Um, but I think in, in the setting of cancer treatment, I would focus on your point that uh, women uh, do get cancer and pregnant women can be affected by cancer. And it certainly is uh, something that can affect and does affect may affect the ability to treat a pregnant woman with cancer um, and may result in having to make some very difficult choices. So I think it's very important um, that we try to preserve um, the access to established, well-described, well-tested medical treatments um, for all people um, and particularly for pregnant women because, um, you know, if there is an issue between the cancer treatment uh, being able to save the life of the woman um, and, you know, coming against the Dobbs decision, that's not a situation where we want to be in. So I think it yeah. is really important and does affect, uh, can affect the, the care of the uh, pregnant cancer patient. So just to step back again now to talk about health disparities in general and cancer, do the disparities you see in cancer, are they reflected in other health outcomes? Is there a direct parallel there? Or are there specific things about cancer that stand out as different? So I think that's a great question. And, and, you know, I and my colleagues at Sloan Kettering and my colleagues around the country um, have really been doing this kind of work for many, many years. But there's no question um, that the whole issue of disparities in health and health equity really came to the forefront and got a lot more focus with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, where we literally saw, particularly here in New York, and experienced that people were so much more likely to be affected, so much more likely to die because of what uh, social determinant of health background they had, specifically their self-described race and their socioeconomic status. And so um, honestly, these are things that have existed for many, many decades, but I think because of the severity of COVID-19, its rapidity of infection and unfortunately um, how severe the outcomes were, it just really made it absolutely visible instantaneously to everyone around the country. And although it was a horrible thing to happen, I think one of the good things that came out of uh, that is that there is much more attention and focus and funding um, and strategies to address health disparities um, that are based on socioeconomic status, self-prescribed race, and social determinants of health in this country, including in cancer. So there was a study, I think about a month ago, that suggested that half, I think as many as half of cancer deaths were attributable to preventable uh, risk factors like drinking too much, high BMI, smoking, um, things of that sort. Did that surprise you in any way? Or is that the kind of result um, you've expected from your work in cancer? So I would say um, that, you know, saying that 50% of cancers are preventable by modifications of behaviors that we can control kind of does surprise me. Um, you know, I'm not familiar with that specific study. Um, I think that 
A lot of cancers are preventable. Certainly, um, the biggest category is smoking. And I'll take this opportunity again. I know everyone's heard it before, but smoking really um, does account for a lot of cancer risk. And certainly, um, stopping smoking and avoiding smoking uh, and tobacco products in general can can uh, obviate a lot of cancers. I think, though, that the links between um, you know, there are links between um, higher BMI, diet, and things like this in cancer. But, you know, cancer is a abnormality of the genetic programming of someone's cells. And I think it's very important for cancer patients not to be made to feel that they did something wrong or that they could have prevented this dread disease by eating right. Because honestly, for most cancers, that's not the reason. The reason is that there's been some um, unexplainable mutation in their DNA that has caused this tumor cancer to be able to grow. However, we are finding more and more links between environmental factors and those genetic modifications. And I would go back to things that, again, people are not able to control, but their exposure to environmental carcinogens, for example. Um, can really be a factor. And I think you're gonna be hearing more and more about links between um, environmental exposures and things that people, um, that can lead to cancer, but certainly things like tobacco um, have been shown to be linked to cancers that could be preventable. Dr. Brown, I have question, time for just one last question. I'm sorry, it's a big one. I want to ask you about structural racism in the healthcare system, anything from doctor's bias to um, the lack of doctors of color who look and feel and talk the way their patients do. What does, what does, how does structural racism affect treatment in cancer? And again, I'm sorry for a big question close to the end of our conversation. So, um, you know, I think, Structural racism certainly does exist. Uh, and I think it certainly affects our healthcare system in general. Um, you know, all of the things that I mentioned earlier about people mistrusting the healthcare system, people being reluctant to enter on clinical trials, all of that is the result of uh, structural racism that's been built into our society. But I have to say that in my experience as a you know, cancer researcher and clinician, I think that um, the effects in cancer, although they're there, I just have to emphasize what I said. When you hear, when someone has a cancer diagnosis, it really does um, bring us all together. And the way that I practice and my colleagues practice is that we really are focusing on the individual patient. There's no question that it, it definitely helps, particularly in the study of cancer disparities and finding solutions to have uh, more investigators, um, scientists, and clinicians who look like the people affected by cancer. And that is something that is critically important and that um, you know, around the country, um, including here at Sloan Kettering, that we have uh, programs and initiatives to address. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the real issue with structural racism is not about how it affects cancer care specifically, but how it has affected the delivery of healthcare in our country completely. And the, the main issue, as, as you can see, is that not everyone, um, and it's also really, I think, related um, a lot more to socioeconomic status than just self-identified race, which again is not a valid biological construct, 
But there's no question that in this country that we can do a better job about making sure that everyone, no matter what their socioeconomic status, has access to good, high-quality health care. And I think that is the, the, the major problem, um, is getting everyone access to health care, whether you want to call it access to comprehensive health insurance or whatever, that is still really the challenge. And that is uh, the barrier to that, I think, has a lot to do with um, uh, not just structural racism, but if I would say structural classism that's built into uh, the delivery of healthcare in our society. Dr. Carol Brown, thank you so much for combining such powerful science with thank you. a message of empathy. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Stay with us. I'm going to be back in a few minutes with Dr. David Agus, who's going to talk to us about the race for the cure. Don't miss it. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Ruth Umo, Leadership Editor at Fortune. Cancer death rates are fallen in the U.S. with more survivors than ever, but there are still racial and ethnic disparities in cancer outcomes. Here to chat with me about this pressing issue is Dr. Ashwani Rajput, a professor of surgery and director of the Johns Hopkins Kimmel Cancer Center in the National Capital Region. Welcome, Dr. Rajput. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Ruth. Thank you for having me. As I alluded to uh, in our introduction, more people are surviving cancer than ever before, which is great news, phenomenal news, in fact. What do you think is contributing to this increase in survivorship? Ruth, it's uh, something that the American Cancer Society follows very closely. And uh, you're right, we have a large number of patients who are now considered survivors. In fact, over 16 million people are survivors today from cancer. But interestingly enough, um, this year alone, there are approximately 2 million Americans that are going to be diagnosed with cancer. And of those 2 million that are diagnosed, about 600,000 are going to die of the disease. We have had a decrease in mortality. Um, the mortality from cancer really peaked in the 1990s. And now we've had a 32% decrease in mortality uh, when we look at the numbers. And your question was why? Why do we have this decrease in mortality? Well, one, it's been with education, primarily decreased smoking rates and understanding the damage that smoking does to the body. We've also invested heavily in early diagnosis and early detection of cancers because we know that if the cancer is diagnosed at an earlier stage, our success with treatment is much better for a cure. And then, of course, we've had advances in treatment, not only in medical oncology, but in radiation oncology and in surgery. So we've had advances in uh, perioperative care. We've had advances in techniques for minimally invasive surgery, not just for um, laparoscopic, but now for robotic surgery as well. And then our colleagues in um, radiation therapy have finessed their techniques as well, not only for what we use traditionally for um, photon therapy, but we have new technologies in proton therapy that actually decrease the long-term side effects of radiation. So those are the main reasons that we've had advances in um, decreasing mortality for cancer. Yeah, it seems quite comprehensive. I want to hone in on treatment specifically. How important are things like research and conducting clinical trials and finding new treatments? 
Oh, it's so important, Ruth, because this is where we make so many advances. So of course we have standard of care, but then when we look at new techniques or new medications, for example, that's where we determine um, how successful we can be with this. I'll cite you just a couple of small examples that um, some of our researchers have participated in. For example, there have been um, advances in immunotherapy and new immunotherapy trials that have been offered to our patients have allowed us to increase the survival of lung cancer patients even more than before. This applies across the board to many different cancers too. For example, we're using this in melanoma. We're using it in renal cell cancer. And there's been uh, reports now even with colorectal cancer that we've made progress um, in treating patients and curing patients because of these clinical trials. Despite all of this research, despite the advances in treatment, you and I both know that not everyone is benefiting equally. Uh, underrepresented minorities are still far more likely to die from cancer than their white peers. First of all, why is that? And subsequently, how do we go about changing that? Well, that's a great and a, a question and a very complicated answer, I think. And so I'll try to attack it. Uh, one of the things that um, is important, and I think the most recent COVID uh, pandemic highlighted this for us, um, and where we found that our underrepresented minorities suffered inordinately. But we've known this has happened in our communities in the cancer care realm for many years. Um, why is this? Um, so it could be for access, right? There could be multiple components in terms of social determinants of health. And by that, I mean, what are the insecurities? Um, is there food insecurity? Is there a problem with transportation to be able to get the patients to the hospital for care? Or is there work that we need to do with early diagnosis? But I think there's a lot of education that we can do in that also in terms of prevention. So I think we really need to understand what the underlying factors are that you alluded to. So whether there's social determinants, whether there's access, whether there are any kind of genetic issues that are going on in these communities as well. And so um, as we all come together to look at these, we also have to design the implementations once we understand what the disparities are. And those disparities, Ruth, can be, as you alluded to, whether they're um, related to ethnicity, or there can also be gender disparities. There can also be rural disparities and urban disparities. So we need to analyze all of these to design the right implementations for those communities so that they can have the same success rates that we're seeing overall in our trends. Absolutely. Well, let's end with this. When you look at the emerging science around cancer street treatment, what stands out to you? Well, Ruth, really understanding what the molecular drivers are of cancer, right? So historically, we've always said, well, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so has a lung cancer or a breast cancer or a colon cancer. I think we're getting to a point now where we can really understand what the drivers are of that cancer that allows it to grow in the body. And this is where our targeted therapies come in. So we've had success with that. So I think rationally designed combination therapies in conjunction with radiation and surgery, and then really what our researchers and scientists have been doing to understand the body's immune system so that we can unleash the immune system on the cancer, not only in part of the treatment, but also for surveillance 
to prevent any secondary occurrence or metastases. Well, I'm certainly excited to see what the future holds as we look to stamp out and eradicate cancer-related deaths across demographics. Thank you, Dr. Rajput, for your role in doing just that and also for your time with us today. Now, back to The Washington Post. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back to Washington Post Live. For those of you just joining us, I'm Frances Deed Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. I'm delighted now to welcome Dr. David Agus, who is the founding director and CEO of the Ellison Institute for Transformative Medicine at USC. Dr. Agus, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you, it's a privilege to be here. Well, and to our viewers, remember, you can tweet questions for Dr. Agus to at Post Live. So send your questions to at Post Live, we'll monitor them and hope to ask him some. Dr. Agus, um, I'd love to ask you about the founding of the Ellison Institute, named after um, Larry Ellison, the founder of Oracle. Um, I believe he gave you $200 million to found your dream medical facility. Tell us about that conversation. What kind of goals and approaches come with it? So first of all, thank you for having me here. You know, the Washington Post is near and dear to my family. My wife's grandfather was the sports editor of the Washington Post for 76 years. <laughs> so one position his entire life. Um, you know, I'm a cancer doctor. And so by definition, my people, cancer doctors, have failed. We haven't won the war on cancer. And while we've made some progress, people are still suffering from this horrible disease. So over the last decade, I've really seen people from different disciplines look at what we do with different eyes, physicists, mathematicians, engineers. And I sat down with Larry Ellison and he said, what's your dream? I said, my dream really is to have a place to enable multiple disciplines to get together and think about one thing, which is cancer. We each view data from a different perspective. And so Larry asked how much, I basically made up a number. He said, I will do that. And that's what the Ellison Institute is. And it's open now. And then it's opening in the United Kingdom at Oxford University, hopefully in the next year. And so the idea is, is that getting different disciplines a place to actually look at the data of cancer, work against cancer. Every wall is glass so students can go by and really look at the labs that are happening and want to aspire to be a nurse, a doctor, a lab technician, because we need that next generation interested too. And so this is a vertical. Nowadays, we have a biology building, a chemistry building. Here is a building all around cancer where patients as well as laboratory people can be together and really hope for the uh, advancements against this horrible disease. So talk about this cross-pollination. It sounds very Silicon Valley to me. It sounds like a disruption of the, of the ways we've done things in, in the past. Is it a repudiation of the ways we've done things of the, in the past or just a new strategy for tackling well, this disease that has haunted us? You know, I hate the notion, well, we're going to throw away the past and reinvent the future. I mean, to me, that while some of Silicon Valley does that, it doesn't make sense in our field. So we made very sure of that. When you walk into the building, the first thing you see is a museum on the history of medicine. I wanted people to know how we got here. You know, 100 years of women and men working in the lab, identifying uh, uh, new aspects of cancer, patients being part of clinical trials, and we're hopefully to take that to a new angle. We've made progress, as you heard about, in the war on cancer, certainly, but we have a long way to go. And the way we're gonna get there is that new ways of thinking and new ideas. And so whether that be Silicon Valley or not, really the fundamental nature of the next generation of advancing cancer is going to be based on data. I really think this is the new era of big data where machine learning and AI can be attached to healthcare data and we can make an impact on people's lives. 
So I'm really interested, of course, that you have an institute in Oxford as well as in America. Um, uh, England has a nationalized health service, data from across the country. The US is far more segmented. Was that a deliberate uh, reason for choosing to open in those two countries? Yeah, I think there were two reasons for Oxford. One is obviously it's remarkable basic science and amazing people thinking in different areas. And then you've got that is probably is the most important data set in healthcare on the globe, which is the NHS, the National Health Service. So together with John Bell, who's the Regents Professor at Oxford, and it really is a remarkable force in medicine in the United Kingdom, we're building an institute to really harness what we have in the UK to help with global cancer. And I think it's going to be very interesting and exciting to get that workforce to really think about what we're doing here and put them together. And, and you know, the initial thing over the last couple of years working together has been tremendous, which led to our starting the institute there. It's very cool. We bought an old mental asylum on the campus of Oxford University and are redoing that to be the new institute there. So are there particular types of cancer you're going to focus on or is it just cancer and cell behavior in general? general? Are, are, there, are there specific first targets? No, I mean, the body part of which it originates, I don't think in the big scheme of things matters. I think to understand why a body uh, develops that we talked about this verb, why it's cancering is the key thing. Um, you know, if I look in a normal division, an amazing study came out in the last two weeks where they looked at the lung in normal individuals. And what they found is almost a third of them had mutations, DNA changes that we associate with cancer. Yet none of the people had cancer because in order to get cancer, you need those DNA changes and you also need a receptive environment. What they showed in that study is that particulate matter in air actually made the lungs receptive to those cells to grow and become a cancer. An amazing study about how cancer happens and why it happens but also showing that our DNA is dynamic and we need better ways of understanding that so we can control and in the, in the end game, prevent cancer. It's a lot easier to prevent than to treat cancer. So what right now do you think the biggest impediments are to curing cancer? Well, if I said to you, you know, listen, I, I want all your credit card data. I want all your bank data. I want all of your financial data and I'll consider giving you a home loan. You say, no problem. I don't even know you, but I'll give you all of my data. If I say I'd like to have your healthcare data in a privacy protected way so that we can hopefully improve your care, and I think importantly, improve the care of all the people on this globe with cancer, you say, no, it's my healthcare data. It's special. I will not put it for research. And I think we have to change that attitude in our country. And when you speak patient to patient, you know, we need a patient bill of rights so that their data can be used to better others in healthcare. And I think we now have the technology advancements to enable to do it in a privacy protected way and using that data in a structured format. You know, the electronic health records that have been used to manage all of our healthcare data, it's been a feature, not a bug, that you can't get data out of them. And that has to change. We have to be able to use that data to improve care. You do it every time you search on Google, your search today is better than yesterday. They looked at where people went, they actually improved their search outcome. In medicine, what we do today is very similar to what we do yesterday and a decade ago. That has to change. So I know that when I go to the supermarket, I'm more willing to give up information about my shopping habits than I am to give up my health data. But you're saying that going ahead, we can ensure people's privacy and control over your use of their health data? 100%. I mean, you can control that it's only used for research purposes, not for profit. You can at any point withdraw that. You can make sure that there are no personal identifiers within that data. In today's technological world, that is very possible, and we need to move to that new advance. You know, the advances we have 
in machine learning AI are profound. What we want to do now is have patients with the disease benefit from these remarkable technological advances and to do so in the near term. At the same time, that technology can be used, as Dr. Brown alluded to before, to actually equal care across the country. If we can make the care for people in this country equal to everybody has the same level as the best academic medical centers, we will have a dramatic impact on the outcome of cancer. Dr. Agus, I'd like to ask you one of the reader questions that I've heard coming in, so let me read it to you. This one comes from Arthur Weinstein from California, who asks, where does mRNA stand in the development of anti-cancer immunotherapies? A very topical question, of course, because the mRNA uh, technology underlies the new COVID-19 vaccines. Yeah, so that same technology, the same vaccines, actually the same companies uh, are applied to cancer therapy, and it's really remarkable how it's being done. So your, your cancer cells are born with a don't eat me signal, and we now have the ability of blocking that. But what happens very quickly is you can get an initial immune response, and then the immune response peters away because the target, the antigen, has gone down in significant numbers. And what RNA is used now, these RNA vaccines, is to increase the target. So it's kind of paradoxical in a sense. You're gonna give the target that's on the cancer cell in an mRNA vaccine. And so those immune systems keep getting rived up. And so they keep attacking to the cancer. And the initial data in several studies were very, very encouraging. And so those are ongoing now. None of them are FDA approved or on the market, but so immunotherapy is out there and it works and it certainly buys time with people with advanced cancers. And the hope is the addition of these mRNA technologies to keep the immune system engaged, if you will, will make that time extension much, much longer. So Dr. Adas, I, I cover health. I get emails all the time. They often come in about advancements in AI, artificial intelligence, and how they will affect care way beyond cancer care. But can you give us a really specific example, a, a layman's example of how AI is affecting cancer care prevention treatment? Take, pick your one. So if you're a woman with breast cancer, what classically happens is we take a needle biopsy, we stick a needle in, we take a piece of the cancer, and we put it under the microscope and says, that's breast cancer. And then several weeks later, we're able to analyze the estrogen receptor, the progesterone receptor, and the HER2, so molecular determinants that tell us how to treat that cancer. Well, if you're that woman who was biopsy, you're staying up for two, three weeks worried to beat the band about whether you're gonna get chemotherapy, hormonal therapy, or no treatment, or just radiation, and you're gonna, uh, you know, until you get that final decision, all you're doing is worrying. And so what AI can do is it can look at the arrangement of the cells, and based on their arrangement, it could tell you right away which of the genes are turned on to enable treatment the next day. That's very exciting for the developed world. Take this $1,200 test that's now and bring it down to almost nothing to do. But also for the developing world, we could do it for free. And to enable people, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa to have molecular targeted treatment for breast cancer. You know, you saw a few months ago, Pfizer announced that their entire portfolio of drugs they're gonna give for cost to Africa. Well, that dramatically changes the landscape. But in order to do that, you need these molecular tests. AI enables that in developing countries and developed countries to improve the care. Dr. Agus, I have a question that's come in from Twitter. I'm gonna read it to you from my phone. Uh, this comes from Kennedy Patlin, who says, great to hear about the Ellison Institute. My question is for David, how does the Institute hope to engage or grapple with ongoing privacy questions regarding patient data as machine learning and AI are integrated into cancer advancements? You've answered some of that, but let's take it a step um, further for Kennedy Patlin. 
you know, you saw the White House, um, I think it was yesterday or the day before. After COVID, I have no concept on days. So anything I can say <laughs> in the last week it was announced um, that they put some guardrails in place for where they think AI should be going, not just in healthcare, but in every areas. And that includes transparency, understanding how the algorithms were developed on what population. If you developed a on a population X and you want to treat the general population, maybe it's not applicable. And so I think that needs to be done in healthcare specifically. And we have a task team here led by Gabriel Seidman who's putting that together now. And so trying to put together both on one angle, this patient bill of rights, that is enabling patients to say, use my data for public good. And at the same time, really developing the standards for quality of data, for storing of data, for safety and security of data. And I think most importantly, for privacy of data. We have the ability to do it. Technology advanced dramatically over the last decade or so to enable that. And now we have to implement it in healthcare at the same time, bring the trust and the communications to the public so they will basically say, hey, it's okay to do this with my data. And so that requires leadership. To get normative behaviors, you need leadership. And in this case, with regard to healthcare data, we really need behavior change for all of us to accept that our data can be used in a privacy-protected way. So I think all of those together are a program that we're working on here with many others across the country and really across the globe. This is not just a U.S. issue, it's a global issue. So that really brings me to a next question, which I had. You spoke very compellingly about the importance of AI in bringing uh, cures for people in the developing world. Um, the race to the cure sounds a little bit like the space race. Is it competitive across national boundaries? Are, are we really all in this together? And is there an understanding of that on the level of scientists? I, I think it's a great question. And I think what you find, like with most industries, is that the people at the top of their game that is the most successful or the uh, really all want to work together. The people who have yet to establish themselves are very competitive many times. And we need to get obviously above that because the bigger issue here is that the, the day sooner we can relieve suffering from a disease, the day sooner some individual will benefit. So we have to do it quicker. So I think you're seeing on a global level a lot more sharing and, comp and competition going away. And a lot of that is because of COVID. What we realized in COVID is that data sharing was critical. If we didn't have data from the Israel, from the UK, our policies in the U.S. would have lagged dramatically and people would have suffered more. And so luckily, they were able to share the data with us. And I think that's what we're seeing now really is a global expansion. And then you couple that with the Zoom. I mean, the Zoom mentality is I speak to scientists in the U.K., in the EU, in developing countries, in China, literally on a regular basis. And I never did that before. So it's enabled us to become one community to fight disease. And I think that's one of the positives that's come from this COVID-19 pandemic. We had Dr. Fauci on just a few months ago talking about exactly that, saying he was on the phone or on Zoom almost every day with British colleagues. I have another audience question, which is great. We've had lots of people um, calling in. This one is from Kate in California, and she asks, how could primary care doctors be playing a greater role in emphasizing the modifiable risk factors patients could be addressing through nutrition and lifestyle changes? A really interesting question from Kate there. I love it. I mean, and the, the idea of preventing cancer is really going to be a global challenge for all physicians and every single person in the healthcare community, whether they be a nutritionist, a nurse, um, we're all part of that same community to prevent cancer. And what we know is there are uh, diet is tremendously important and we know the principles of diet and we need to educate people better on that and incentivize them to do the right thing. 
We also need a feedback loop, right? There's a laboratory test, for example, a 90-day average of blood sugar called a hemoglobin A1C. And so the day before you go to the doctor, you always do the right thing. But having this 90-day average is a feedback loop to tell the patient, hey, you need to focus on X, Y, or Z. We have drugs, you know, there's a pill a day that will reduce not the incidence, but the death rate of cancer by 30%, a baby aspirin. In the appropriate patient, makes a lot of sense. We have drugs like statins, the Lipitor and the Crestors of the world that again, by lowering cholesterol, they also reduce inflammation and at the same time reduce the incidence or the recurrence of cancer. All of these need to be part of the, the generalized healthcare uh, uh, education to the patient and also to the physician, the doctors, the nurses, the whole team, so they know what's going on. And then we know things like particulate matter and air. We know that obviously smoking isn't good for you. We know certain foods can be associated if taken in high amounts with increased incidence of cancer. All of those need to be gotten out there. And, you know, we as a society need to really under identify that cancer is modifiable, our risks. You know, the difficulty is, is that it takes a decade or two for those modifications to have ramifications. And it's very difficult to tell you, do something today that's going to help you a decade or two from now. But we have to start to educate in that regard. And I really believe it's going to get down to education. Dr. Agus, uh, President Biden relaunched the cancer moonshot. I think you are on the task force and you called it Moonshot Shot 2.0. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you're doing there and what the immediate goals are? You know, I first met, uh, it was Vice President Biden at the time, and he had said, I'm going to do a moonshot. You know, you kind of roll your eyes because lots of people make these broad claims. And then sitting down with him, First of all, you could see the passion for his son dying of brain cancer and why he wanted to do this and to really stop the suffering that other people are, that he knew personally what he went through with his son. But he also did things in a very realistic fashion. He said, if I can make a breakthrough that would have happened in five years, happened in three years, I have a dramatic impact on people's lives. And it wasn't these grandiose statements. And, and, and so he started to get it. And he said, listen, I'm gonna do the, 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 the unsexy things, if you will, is to take away roadblocks to enable progress to happen. And I've seen that with him, is that I've been in the room with him with pharma execs and CEOs where he's talked about pricing and access to drugs. I've seen him talk about data and data sharing. And those things, while necessarily unsexy, the foundations behind him can have a tremendous impact on the outcome of cancer. And then I think, you know, just bringing a focus and bringing people together to work together on cancer. It's a team game. And we're going to win it not by an individual discovery, but by groups across the country working together to give a better, better understanding. And he's bringing that, you know, I, I think to the forefront. So this Moonshot 2.0 really is going to be that. It's going to be unleashing the power of big data. It's going to be groups working together. And it's going to be getting the foundation together so we have data standards. We all call things the same. So all of a sudden, our data can be shared. Because if you call it a broken leg and you call it a fractured leg, your databases may not re relate to each other and they can't be combinable. But if we can develop those standards, they will be. And so working on all of those together, I think is going to have a big impact. And we need that impact. You know, the day sooner that impact happens, a day sooner a patient can benefit. And every patient out there now with advanced cancer is praying that the hope or the breakthroughs happen today rather than tomorrow. Dr. Nagus, I want to squeeze in one last question, again, to do with President Biden, who talks about turning cancer into a chronic disease people can live with. Just briefly, what does that look like? Is that something you see coming in the near future? I think it is. I mean, if I told you you had diabetes, you don't jump off a bridge. It's not, you know, we know we can handle it and manage it. And I think we're going to get there with cancer. 
Cure is a big road uh, word, and I'm not sure we're going to actually get there in the near term, but I do think we're going to be able to manage cancer, and we're getting better with it now. Every patient now can have their genome of the cancer sequence to identify the on and the off switch. That is paid for now by insurance. At the same time, we now have immune therapy, your own immune system attacking to the cancer. We have molecular targeted therapy. We have an arsenal that we would have dreamed of a decade ago, and it's here today. And the real challenge now is to get that used in the right patient at the right time at the right uh, uh, dose. And I think we're getting there. And that's going to enable cancer, hopefully, to be much more of a chronic disease. And so people can live with cancer rather than die from it when they're diagnosed. Dr. David Agus, what a great target at managing cancer. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's my privilege. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.